0: For more details, please check out our website, www.heritagebaptist.co.za Acts chapter 18, from verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaea. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galio paid no attention to any of this. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. False accusations. Christianity throughout history has been accused of many things, most of which are not true. The Christian faith has had to contend not only for its own beliefs, that is what it actually believes and practices but it's also had to contend throughout history against what other people people believe Christianity is and is trying to achieve. Some of the false accusations have been based on misunderstanding. For example, in the early church, there were accusations that Christianity is a cannibalistic religion because whenever the Christians met at night, they ate someone's flesh and drank someone's blood. That was the accusation, but of course this was a misunderstanding of the table of communion. Other times the false accusations were related to a pure ignorance of Christianity's history. Many for example today view Christianity as something that was created as a ploy of colonialism. This is simply a misunderstanding of what Christianity is and certainly where it came from. We have seen that in the book of Acts. Christianity comes from the Middle East in Jerusalem. Among the many accusations against Christianity, the one that Luke was most interested in the book of Acts to to squash and kill is the accusation that was alive at the time that said Christianity is a rebel-rousing, revolutionary, and riotous religion. When Luke is writing the book of Acts, part of him writing the book of Acts is answering this question, why is it that wherever Christianity comes, riots and chaos occur? Is it because Christianity itself is a chaotic and a revolutionary religion? Religion. Now, this doesn't sound normal to you because you live in Johannesburg in 2024, and Christianity is not associated with chaos and rioting uh, today. But the equivalent of new of our newspapers and social media videos in the first century would show that wherever Christianity arrived, particularly. Wherever Paul arrived with Christianity, there is commotion and great commotion in the city. And this, of course, was a big issue for Rome because Rome was trying to manage its its empire with order and they were very serious about quashing any kind of rebellion. Of course, this perception began with the founder of Christianity, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus himself was considered one of the many Jewish rebels uh, who gathered a following and then was executed by Pilate. And, and, and you remember there was a big, there was a big hoo-ha there when the Lord Jesus was killed. And for many years after the Lord Jesus, the disciples had run-ins with the authorities in Jerusalem. And not only the disciples in Jerusalem, but pretty much wherever the gospel went, there were commotions and riots in Antioch of Syria in Lystra, in Derby, in Athens, in Thessalonica, and now for our consideration this morning both in Corinth and in Ephesus. And so, if Christianity, if this religion is to be taken seriously, why does trouble and quarreling and fighting follow it wherever it goes? Luke details for us throughout the book of Acts that yes, while there is a commotion and rackets wherever the gospel is preached, the gospel is entirely innocent. That's what he's trying to show. And he's showing that in the two passages we're going to look at today. And in fact, he's going to focus more on it as he draws his book to a close as we near Paul going in front of Caesar, going to first Agrippa and then appealing to Caesar. He's going to show that, that yes, indeed, there are a lot of riots. There's a lot of commotion. There's a lot of fighting whenever Christianity arrives. But if you look at each case, you will see that Christianity is entirely innocent. Luke wants to press his point firmly in our faces. And so first, what I would like us to do, I want to take you through both passages, both this one here in chapter 18, and I want us to jump to the one in chapter 19 and look at the reasons for the commotion in both texts. And then we will do a synthesis of what we can learn from what Luke is trying to say. Now, when you consider both passages, You will notice something odd which is done by luke on purpose and that odd thing is this paul and his companions are entirely missing from speaking in the narrative they do not speak at all they do not start anything the main actors in both these narratives the one here in chapter 18 and the one in chapter 19 which we'll read in a moment you will notice that the apostles are not the spark they are not the catalyst of the riot here in chapter 18 the passage we've just read from verse 12 we see that it is the Jews in verse 12 who made a united attack on Paul and grabbed him and brought him before the tribunal bringing an accusation the reason that there was commotion there wasn't because Paul started something it's because they brought him with accusations and now the reason that they take him to Gallio, Gallio is the proconsul, and we've seen this word before. Proconsul is a form of a governor of a of a particular region in the Roman Empire, and Gallio was a very pristine one. He is, was quite prestigious of a man. Who was related to Seneca, who was an important person in uh, in the Roman Empire at the time. So this was this is a big deal being brought to Gallio in Corinth, and if Galio, a, who is a Roman governor, makes a harsh judgment on Paul, then Paul would be stopped from preaching not only in Corinth, but he'd be stopped from preaching in all the other Roman cities as well. So with this, with them bringing Paul here, there is a lot at stake and in many ways, in a human sense, the future of Christianity is also at stake. But what happens when they bring him they bring him and then they say here's the accusation in verse 13 this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law and what happens as Paul is about to open his mouth Gallio stops him and speaks to the Jews and says I want nothing to do with this just like how God closed the mouths of the lions in the den with Daniel so here he opens Gallio's mouth and Gallio refuses to make any judgment. This is massive. This is a, an important part in the narrative of Acts. If Gallio said something otherwise, if Gallio judged in, the, in, in a negative way for Christianity, it would have been much harder for Paul and the other apostles to preach the gospel going further and notice i want you to not miss what he says in verse 21 look at what he says in verse 21 if it were a matter of wrongdoing right if it was a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime O jews i would have reason to accept your complaint this is serious vindication What he is saying, and certainly for other generations later on, when he is making this this judgment, he is saying, I find nothing wrong with Paul and what he is doing. There is no wrongdoing with Paul, and there is certainly no vicious crime. He has not broken any Roman law. This is entirely a Jewish matter, so I'll let you handle it. It's exactly the same phrasing as what was said by Pontius Pilate, do you remember? When Pontius Pilate tried Jesus, he examined the Lord Jesus and then he said, I find absolutely nothing wrong with this man. But of course, the Jews still wanted his head just like they're doing here. They still want Paul and they want him to be, to be made to keep quiet, even though he has done nothing wrong in law. But not only does this give vindication to Paul that Paul is innocent, it also means that Paul as a Roman citizen can continue to practice and preach Christianity as a pro- as a branch of Judaism which at this point was a protected religion. There were certain religions that were protected in certain areas under the Roman Empire and Rome and Judaism was one of them. And so Paul is preaching as a branch of Judaism and that's his his license to preach as it were is well, I'm a Jew, and what I'm preaching, I'm preaching that th- the gospel that I'm preaching is that the Jewish Messiah has arrived. So he's using some legal terms, and, that is, and, that, and, and, that, and this allows him to continue preaching this way. The Jews, in anger, because they are not getting what they want with regards to Paul, you see what the Jews do there. They grab Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. And Gallio sees this and he does nothing. Again, Gallio does not want to be interested in what the Jews are doing. So to recap, why was there a big riot in Corinth? Because Paul was accused by the Jews of twisting Judaism. Who started the commotion? It was not Paul, it was the Jews. Was Paul found guilty? No, he was considered innocent regarding Roman law. Now, turn with me to chapter 19 and verse 21. This is when now Paul has arrived in Ephesus. He has preached powerfully in Ephesus. A church has arisen and many people have left uh, the, the worship of the idols in Ephesus and this is what happens and this is a huge commotion a big riot happens in Ephesus which is another important and major city in the Roman Empire look at verse 21 of chapter 19 now after these events Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying after I've been there I must also see Rome and having sent into Macedonia Macedonia Two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there was no little disturbance con- uh, concerning the way, concerning Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have made our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, excuse me, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, and the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another there. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in their regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, there was a lot happening there, wasn't there? In Ephesus, there is a huge riot And why is there a huge right? Because Paul and his companions have arrived in Ephesus. They preach the gospel. And then many Ephesians turn from the gospel. And when they turn from the gospel, they no longer want to buy all these idols that are being sold all over the city. And when they don't want to buy all these idols that are being sold all over the city, and in fact, when they burn their idols, then what that does is that the people who are profiting, Financially, from the sale of these idols, from the sale of of the veneration of Artemis and all the idolatry that goes with it, those people are now suffering because there's not a, there's not a big enough market. See they had done their market research, they had come and said, you know this this market is ripe for people to worship, and so let's just keep keep producing. They had a factory there in China that they brought across the things there was Let's keep producing, uh, manufacturing these things, and let's let's sell them. And now they are losing business. And so they come together. And as you hear, Demetrius, who's a silversmith, he's the one who started this. He gathered together all the people who are losing business and saying the reason that we are losing business is because people have become Christians and they're no longer involved in in idolatry. They don't want to buy what we're selling anymore. And so Demetrius stirs up the crowd and there's just commotion to such a point where it says a whole bunch of people came into the town center. A whole bunch of people were there causing a lot of chaos, but they had no idea what they were there for. This riot really had nothing to do with Christianity in a sense. It was was not started. There was no real accusation against Christianity. And once again... When the, they try to speak, you so saw, remember in Corinth, Paul r- tried to speak and Gallio shut him down. He said, No, don't, there's nothing for you to say because I don't want to be involved in this. Well, it's the same thing. Alexander tries to speak in verse 33. He tries to speak, to try to, to make a defense of Christianity to the crowd, but then he's also stopped from speaking, and this time he's stopped by the crowd because they notice that he is a Jew. So in both situations, there's no defense, there's no proper court case. Those who are accused aren't even able to make a defense because there's no, there's no, there's no charge that sticks against them. And once again, look at the one who's in authority from verse 35, who is called the town clerk, basically the mayor. He says this, that these men are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers. Look at verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a, a complaints against anyone, let them go to the courts. What he is saying is there's all this commotion here and this is not the right platform for this. If somebody has an accusation against somebody, there's the Roman courts that are here and bring a charge and it'll be, it'll be examined according to Roman law. The mayor is effectively saying, stop this commotion. And if you have a real complaint against them, follow the right channels in society. You guys have done, you you, you are causing this chaos, but it's based on nothing. Imagine if you are a member of Ephesus Baptist Church a number of years later. And somebody says, yeah, but you guys, you Christians were the reason why there was that huge chaos Back in the day, you could easily say, no, the records show, these records that Luke is putting for us here, these records are showing that we were not in the wrong. Christianity was not in the wrong. We couldn't even make a defense because there was no real charge against us. It was purely out of greed that we were told to stop preaching. The leaders of, Christi- of Christendom at this point were innocent. And there is nothing that sticks. So, with those two store, those two narratives uh, examined, now I want to synthesize it for us. I want to summarize for us some implications of these two passages for us. Why does why does this matter to you today? What does this have any relevance to you? And what does really this what does really does this have any relevance with regards to Christendom? number one the first point is this Christianity's main interest is people not chaotic upheaval Christianity's main interest is people not chaotic upheaval the world has a history of new ideas that come to revolutionize the way the world works this is usually tied to some perceived injustice of the day or some radical new information. The history, for example, of the modern world as an example bears this out. Colonialism bred anti-colonialists. The dominance of religion for thousands of years bred anti-religious atheists. Racism breeds anti-racists. Right-wing politics dominates for a while and then a left-wing populist shows up and brings up evil, and in other places, left-wing, left-wingers rule for a while, and then a right-wing populist shows up and to cause chaos. In the West, for example, there was no feminism, and then there is feminism, and now there is a huge and massive anti-feminist movement. There are all kinds of people all the time trying to change the status quo, in South Africa, for example, the dominant ANC for the past 30 years has bred multiple anti-ANC movements dedicated to overthrowing the status quo by the means that they deem necessary. My point is this, if you live in the world, you are aware that there are constantly new ideas coming to seek to cause a revolution, to change the way that things are happening, an upheaval of the current climate and a new utopia based on a set of ideals, usually led by a populist leader or a movement. This has happened throughout time, and it was certainly happening in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was constantly trying to deal with those who were trying to up to upend the status quo, trying to change the way that things are going. And so Christianity was viewed in the same light. This is some kind of new revolutionary movement that's going to come and powerfully or violently change things. But this was entirely wrong. Christianity is no such idea. Christianity is not at all interested in any chaotic upheaval. Christianity is primarily interested in people being saved and then their salvation leads to certain implications. Christianity says, repent and believe. And if you repent and believe, then you will live a certain way. If you repent and believe in Christ, then there's going to be certain implications and there's going to be some kind of impact in the society. But Christianity as a unit, as an organized group, does not have a military wing. You with me? There is no MK here. As a unit, Christianity preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then there will be change in small ways. Our confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession, puts it this way. In the execution of this power, talking about the Lord Jesus and his authority, he says this in, the, in chapter 4, uh, paragraph 4. In the execution of Jesus' power, wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his Spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribes to them in his word. Though Those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of their public worship, which he requires of them in the world. What is it that is required of us as a particular church, ones who have been bought out of the world and bought by the blood of Christ? is two things, is that we personally might walk in the commandments that have been given to us and that we might come together for public worship. But there will be some effect. There will be change, as we see in Ephesus. There will be some kind of effect in society. And here's how the the effect happens. If you are a Christian and you believe the gospel, there are certain industries who will no longer receive your money. You with me? If you have believed in the gospel of Christ, if you have turned from darkness to light, there are certain people who are trying to make money who will not get your money. If before Christianity came to you, you were frequenting a, to put it mildly, a gentleman's club, that business will now lose you. That business should now lose you. If you were involved in piracy, that business should now be poorer because you are no longer a client. If you were a corrupt business owner paying bribes so that you can get the business, that brown envelope business should now suffer because you are no longer involved. There are people who should have less money because you are now a Christian. Those who make pornographic material should make less money because you are no longer involved. Those who sell stolen goods should make less money because you are no longer involved. The drunken house of debauchery and all manner of licentiousness that you used to frequent should now make less money because somebody has been born again. Now, friends, it would be wonderful if all of these places of idolatry were to shut down all at once, wouldn't it? It would be great. We'd certainly, we'd certainly love that. It would be beautiful if all these places that promote evil and vice in society were to shut down immediately, kind of like we're, what we're seeing here, uh, what we're seeing here in Ephesus. It would be beautiful, but that is not how Christianity normally works. It certainly happened with Demetrius but it didn't last because many other Ephesians continued to worship not just Artemis but other gods and in fact it was overrun by that religion for for quite a while after this. And if you look for example at the history of Europe where Europe was once a very strong Christian bastion where the gospel had an almost universal stronghold for centuries Certain evil practice that you and I know God hates were considered abominable in the hearts of the people, and they were were even illegal by law because of the religious sensibilities of the time, because of the dominance of Christianity at the time. But what's happened today? Today these places that were once Christian bastions, these places are the source of the worst drunkenness, the source of the worst illicit material and greed that the world has ever known. So because of the hundreds of years the West was generally Christian but now is decidedly anti-Christian, has Christianity failed? No, Christianity has not failed because it was never the gospel's aim to have that immediate stranglehold. On the world it was always Christianity's aim to proclaim Christ and those who belong to God come to him and incidentally the nation and the society benefits so let me say this it is possible that some of you are here looking at Christianity hoping that it can achieve some kind of societal aim to make the world better in its current state And to you, I will say, you have not two, not one, but zero promises from Jesus and the apostles stating that the Christianity will make the world better in its current state. You have none. There's no promise to such a state. You can't even find something that even leans that way. There is no such conversation. The entire focus of the New Testament is the greatness of Jesus Christ expressed in his mercy towards sinners and the righteousness that he bestows on his own people. In other words, the great focus of the New Testament is who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how those who receive grace from him must live. There is no plan, no military wing, no strategy, no design, no instruction on how you and I can create a revolutionary situation in the world in its current state. This is extremely important. But note this also. It is important to say this as well on the other side of that. Jesus does have a plan for the redemption of the world. The earth has been groaning for the revelation of the sons of God in Christ. Jesus will indeed cleanse the earth. He will clean it up. He will not just let it go. He will clean it up. The gospel will win. But do you know how that happens? I want to show you how that happens. Come with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 13. And I want to show you how that happens. How the Lord Jesus... Cleans up this earth that he made. How the gospel wins. Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 24. Jesus put another parable before the disciples and he said this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, what does this mean? Well, thankfully, the Lord Jesus gives us an explanation of what this parable means. Jump to verse 36, when he now explains what he means uh, with regards to to this parable. Verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sold them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. How does the Lord Jesus cleanse the world? Number one, he will destroy all lawbreakers and those who are unrepentant of sin. At the time of the harvest, when it is time to wrap everything up, he's allowing his garden right now to grow both the wheat and the weeds. But there will come a time when all lawbreakers, all causes of sin, all those who oppress others, all those who cause all kinds of hurt to people, that day will come when he comes and wraps it all up and he takes them and puts them in one side. And then he will repopulate the earth with the ones that he has redeemed. That's how he cleanses things up. He is cleaning things up. He is cleaning the earth up by bringing into a huge number, ensuring that the number of the redeemed reaches what it needs to be. And then, when the time comes, he will judge all the lawbreakers, and he will fill the earth with all the righteous. So what does this mean for you and me? This is what it means. If you're here and you're not innocent, if you're here and you're a lawbreaker, you you know that you have done things that are evil and wrong that God hates. There is coming a time of judgment where there will be no escape. The time for escape is now. Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice, has made a way of escape now. That is why he's not causing a huge revolution across the earth all at once. Why does Jesus allow such suffering and hurt and pain to, to, to continue for, for millennia? It is because so that you today might hear the gospel and repent and believe. Sometimes people have this big question, why does God allow all this evil? Why does God allow this hurt? It is so that some might be saved. So that if he comes and destroys all the weeds, the wheat will burn at the same time. So what he's saying is, no, let's gather in the wheat. So let me say it to you now. The reason you are still alive and here today, having to endure evil, it is because Jesus is opening his hands to all those who would come to him while there is still time. Before he wraps things up and does a worldwide revolution that will not be thwarted. So I would encourage you to come to Christ. I implore you to come to Christ because this time of judgment, even though you might not see it, you might not conceive it. It seems like everything is continuing as it always has. Don't be fooled and deceived. The, car- the time of judgment is coming where the wheat and the weeds will be separated. Well, that's the first point that I want to bring to your notice, that Christianity's interest is people and not chaotic upheaval. Here's the second thing. Christianity's adherents must suffer as innocence. Those who follow in Christendom must suffer as innocence. For this, I'm going to ask you to come with me to First Peter in chapter 2 where Peter really explains what we're talking about today in a very simple and straightforward uh, way. 1 Peter chapter 2. If a lot of this is unclear to you, this passage should make it clear. 1 Peter chapter 2. From verse 18, Peter says this Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And here's why verse 19 For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I want to bring, you, bring to our attention three things in this passage. First, Peter makes a point to say, It is a gracious thing. To suffer, to endure suffering in God's eyes when you are suffering because you have done what is right. To to stand, to suffer and suffer well because you have done what is right is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is a credit to your account, as it were, if you think on God, if you consider God and then suffer injustice. All Paul and his companions did was only good all they did was to get to an area and preach the gospel and then a riot came all that's all they did they came they preached the gospel a riot came that's all they they didn't do anything evil they did not twist anybody they did not steal anybody's anything they did what was right and because they because of this they were persecuted for it And they were conscious of God. In other words, they they knew that they were being watched by God when they're suffering. And they knew that he will take care of them. One of the clearest signs of faith in God is how one suffers when you're doing good. How do you suffer when you feel like a great injustice has been done against you? You've done nothing wrong. You've done only what is right. And you feel like a great... great injustice is being done against you how do you suffer what shows that you really have faith in God is that you suffer well conscious of God do you see what he says there if you are conscious of God he says this in verse uh, in verse uh, 20 uh, and 21 if you are thoughtful, if your mind is aware of God as you suffer and you are suffering the right way, and what does suffering the right way means? Well, he, he shows us telling us about our great example, the Lord Jesus. Even though he was, even though he committed no sin, while he was reviled in verse 23, he did not revile in return. While he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not fight back, but he entrusted himself. Him in verse 23 who judges justly. How do you suffer when you feel like you've done only what is right? If you retort with violence, the same violence that's coming to you, you're not suffering well. If you retort with the same threats that are coming to you, if you if there is no difference between you and those who are causing you to suffer unjustly, if you are also now saying the same things to them? That's not a gracious thing in the sight of God. But the greatest place where we see your faith is that you trust that God sees you, God has you in his mind. And in one sense, he says here, it is to your credit, in your account, in God's mind, if you suffer well. The second thing to note here is that in verse 20, he says, there is no credit to you when you suffer for doing evil. Look at verse 20 again. In verse 20, it says this For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So he's saying, You've sinned, you've been caught in the sin, and now you're being judged for being caught in the sin, and then you endure well. There's no credit to you because you are suffering. You are suffering for doing wrong. In other words, if you, if you had the best way I could put this as an analogy is if you had driven out at night to serve a fellow believer by taking them a meal in their time of need and as you drive back you get mugged the Lord sees that in your favor in the world to come you had left you were doing good you were trying to serve somebody else and by serving somebody else you suffered injustice but if you speed, right, on the road, some of you speed freaks. If you speed and you have to pay a 500 rand fine because of that speed and you don't complain, you know, you, you are caught because you were speeding or you were, you were doing a maneuver on the road that's illegal and you're caught and you have to pay a 500 rand fine and you suffer well, you, you manage yourself, you endure, you don't fight back. He's saying that's no credit to you because you are suffering for doing evil. Why were you doing evil in the first place? So here's what he's saying to us. He's saying, you you ought to be so heavenly minded that one of the motivations for not doing evil is that there is no credit for you in the kingdom of heaven for suffering well while doing evil. So I am to be so heavenly minded. I to have my mind so focused on the kingdom that is to come That I am to stay away from evil because there's no benefit to me if I'm caught in shameless acts. The point here is stay away from evil. Stay away from things that would be shameful if you were caught doing because there's no credit to you for doing those. There's no credit to you for suffering for doing those. We are called, what he's trying to get at here is this. We are called to live a life of innocence. If we suffer at the hands of the law, if we have run-ins with the law, let it be because we have done what is right. So let me encourage you, stay away from what is evil. Stay away from law-breaking. You are called to a religion of innocence. T.S., those who are innocent, you are called to live a life following your master who suffered for doing what is right. Do not be a Christian who constantly has disputes and conflicts at your complex, at your work, in your society, because you are always in the midst of the, of the ruckus. Do not be a Christian who is known. Yeah, this, Yeah, we, we know number 24. The one who goes to Heritage Baptist Church at number 24. If there's commotion in the complex, you'll probably find him there. Don't be that. You are called to a religion of innocence. Of those who are innocent. Or those who suffer for doing what is right, not what is wrong. And he gives us the the reason why we ought to do so. He says this in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ had every right to retort. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ had every right to threaten. In a moment he could have called a legion of angels to destroy all those who were touching him. This dust. This dust that he made is now coming and touching him and putting him on a cross. And they were even taunting him. You saved others. You can't save yourself. No, he can save himself. He's choosing not to. He endured unjust suffering so that you and I could live a life of enduring unsuff- unjust suffering. He endured unjust suffering so that you and I who are guilty can be called just and innocent. Because of what he has done, we cannot, We do not now have to think of ourselves as if if something is happening to us, that's the end of the story. No, it isn't. We entrust all of our enemies, all those who persecute us, all the situations we find ourselves in where we are suffering for doing what is right, we, fa- we entrust all of those people to the Lord. Christian, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is God's, not yours. If you live a life of pursuing vengeance for yourself, you are living a life of faithlessness. If every single time you are done wrong, people know about it. You are that character. You are betraying your Lord who suffered for you in innocence. Let me encourage you, saints. Suffer as an innocent, just like our Lord did and just like his apostles before him, after him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, please forgive us for times when we have taken matters into our own hands because we have felt aggrieved. Please, please, Lord, help us to be those who suffer well. May all of us, Lord, be a people who are known for suffering well. That they might ask us, what hope is it that you have in you? Forgive us, Lord. It is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to repay a reviling with a blessing. It's not an easy thing to turn the other cheek and allow ourselves to be seen as nothing on the earth. But because you, Lord, you did it first, you were spit on, you were reviled, you were pierced, all this evil was done to you, we also then, Can follow in your steps, in your footsteps. We pray, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit you would strengthen what is weak among us. If there are those among us who have a disposition of self defense at all times, constantly thinking that we are something that must be defended, oh, we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, in all of us, as we know that we all want to defend ourselves, we all want to fight back. Please help us, Lord Jesus. Help us. Give us grace. Strengthen what is weak. Give us that self-control. Give us a measure of what you had. Thank you for paying for all of our sins of reviling and fighting back. Thank you for giving us salvation and freedom to walk before God without shame. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do what is right. That we might follow you. That we might grow year on year, be more and more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 The hymn we close with is "Sgiwe Redeemed." It is a hymn that talks about our redemption and how we are now those who are innocent because of the blood of Christ and how we ought to respond in joy and full happiness. For those of you, if if you're new with us, we sing this hymn, we sing three verses and we repeat them in English and Zulu. So we'll sing the first verse in English and the chorus and then we repeat that same verse in Zulu the second time. So please do stand with me and let's sing together Lengiwe Redeemed. to be considered to be redeemed to be considered a holy one of God to be wrapped in righteous robes for eternity if you're a visitor with us first time there's a welcome desk on this side there's also a a coffee table uh, outside for visitors and the elderly and the infirm on my right on my left there your right so please do join us we want to get to know you more and give you more information about the church those of you who are becoming members on the 24th uh, and your name is on the bulletin please do come up to the front here straight after the service and we will meet again this evening uh, for to continue our series in the book of Esther let me read to you the benediction from Romans 16 now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation